The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Psalm 16. We're continuing our series, Heart Cries, and it's been such a joy getting to spend the summer in the Psalms. I hope you guys have been blessed uh, as much as I have. I know Sean has been blessed getting to teach through the Psalms, and there's so much there for us to glean and to learn from. And uh, the title of my message for you this evening is Life, Joy, and Pleasures Forevermore. But before we get into that, I do have a couple of announcements. Number one, my sister, Annie, Annie Stone, Sean's, husband, uh, Sean's wife, rather, um, she is an anointed Bible preacher. Somebody say amen. 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 So she has a new study that she told me is dropping this Tuesday. It's a mini-series, and she's calling it ConOps. Now, this word, it evolves from a concept and is a description of how a set of capabilities may be employed to achieve desired objectives or an end state. So there you go. That's ConOps. It's a mini-series, and it's going to be going for the next couple of weeks. It drops this Tuesday at 9.30 a.m. They're going to be looking at uh, Noah's Ark and and, uh, being prepared physically. And she has a special guest, a guy that I've recently met and become friends with. His name is Zachary Pascal. And or Pascal, and he's a forming, former Navy SEAL, and he's going to be weighing in on the conversation. So uh, there'll be a printout and a PDF that you, can, that you can use that goes along with the study. So go ahead and check that out this Tuesday. But tonight we're in Psalm 16. And again, the title is Life, Joy, and Pleasures Forevermore. Um, the title affixed to this psalm describes it as a mictum of David. That's an interesting word, and scholars aren't entirely, entirely sure what it means. Some trace it back to a word that means to engrave or an inscription. So think of some of those Egyptian or Greek statues or structures that have engravings on them. Some of those date back hundreds or in some cases thousands of years, and you have these inscriptions on those. And just as those inscriptions have stood the test of time, the idea behind this word, mictum, is that it's something that's worth remembering and preserving and observing. Other scholars say that the word mictum refers to a hidden or mysterious kind of psalm. And then a third possible interpretation of this word mictum is that it refers to something that is golden. Personally, I think all three definitions work. Right In this psalm, we're getting into something that is truly special. And the author doesn't just want us to read it. He wants us to allow the truths buried in this psalm to engrave themselves on our hearts and etch themselves into our very souls. Beyond that, he wants us to dig deep. It's not the kind of psalm that you can just scratch the surface with. He says, if you want to really mine the gold from this psalm, then you're going to have to get beneath the surface. So let's go ahead and do that and make that our aim this evening as we read it. It says, keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. That is such a key statement. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. 
Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I'll not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely, I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at, at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure. Why? Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence and with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Amen. Everybody say amen. Mm, that is good. It's been said that the book of Psalms as, as a whole really contains two major themes. The first being that life is tough. Somebody say amen to that. Life is tough. The other theme that kind of works its way throughout the book of Psalms is that God is good. And that is equally true this evening. Both of those statements hold intention, but both are equally true tonight. Number one, life is tough. And Jesus promised us that life would be tough. He didn't promise us a life free from trials and tribulations. He said, in this world, you're going to have tribulation. And I think 2020 it would qualify as a tough year, amen? I, I saw a meme earlier that said this, congratulations, you made it to August. Welcome to level eight of Jumanji, right? <laughs> like I said, it's been a tough year. But here's some good news for us all. Even in the worst of times, God is still good. Amen. And the tougher, the harder, the rougher that things get, the more glorious God's goodness becomes. Now, that's not to say that life isn't going to come with its trials. And not everything that happens in this world is going to be good. Bad things will happen. But that doesn't change the fact that God is good. We have a saying around here. We say, God is good all the time. All the time. Is Amen. His purposes are good. His plans are good. His intentions for you are good. And this is something that I know I regularly need to be reminded of. And, and I'm sure the same is true for you. And that's why I'm thankful for Psalms like Psalm 16. You see, this psalm was written during a difficult period in David's life. We know that because he begins the psalm by saying, keep me safe, oh my God. In you, I'm looking to take refuge. And so David here, it's thought by many of the scholars, is in a time of tribulation. Most scholars agree that he wrote this psalm when he was a refugee fleeing from King Saul. Now, what's curious about that is when we typically picture or think of refugees, we think of people in their lowest and worst state. Refugees are people to pity, people who have nothing, no homeland, no resources, no hope, and no possessions. Their lives are marked by survival, not certainty, depression, not joy. And yet the picture that emerges of David in this psalm is one of a man who is triumphant 
and exultant. He's exulting in God's provision, and he's celebrating God's faithfulness and God's goodness in his life. He talks about being satisfied over and over again and having all that he needs all because of his relationship with the Lord. In verse 2, he writes, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, and apart from you, I have no good thing. Now, I love this verse. He says to the Lord, you are my Lord. Now, what's interesting about that is he actually uses two different Hebrew words for Lord in that same verse. Actually, if you include the first verse, David uses three different words for God in just two verses. In the first verse, when he talks about God, he uses the Hebrew word El. It's the word that describes God's creative power and jurisdiction, how God is creatively powerful. Then in verse 2, he moves on to a more personal name for God, and he calls him Yahweh. I will say to Yahweh, to the Lord. Now, Yahweh, of course, is the covenant name of God. It's more personal than El. It's the name by which God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush and later through him to the people of Israel. It's the name that means I am. But then in the next phrase, David says, I say to Yahweh, you are my Adonai. And this is an even more personal name for God. And David's saying, you're not just the Lord in some general way, but you are my Lord and my personal Savior. And that really does make all the difference. The reason David was able to exude so much confidence, even in the midst of really trying times, is because he knew the Lord in a personal way. As a matter of fact, David uses the personal pronoun my over a dozen times in this psalm. In verse 1, he says, you are my refuge. In verse 2, he says, you're my Lord. In verses 5 and 6, he says, you are my counsel and my portion and my cup. In verse 7, he says, you are at my right hand. In verse 8, he says, you are my hope. In verse 9, he says, you are my guide. And in verses 10 and 11, he says, you are my fullness and my joy and my pleasure for all of eternity. In all of this, what David's doing is he's letting us know that everything he needed for life, he found in his relationship with the Lord. And his, his satisfaction in God was so complete that he, he, he says, in conclusion, I really have no good apart from you. Think about that. Another translation renders verse 2 in this way. All the good things in my life come from you. Amen. What a beautiful statement that is. Every good thing that I have, Lord, it's only because of you. And I wonder, can you say the same thing tonight? Could you honestly say, Lord, I have nothing besides you, and there's nothing on this earth that could ever take your place? See, in John's gospel, we're told of this occasion where, where Jesus was teaching, and he was preaching some hard things. And in response to this hard teaching, a lot of the people that had been following Jesus turned around, and they left, and they no longer followed him. And in response to that, Jesus turned to his guys, the 12, the disciples, and he said, are you guys going to leave me too? And you remember what Peter said? He said, Lord, where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And that's Peter simply echoing the sentiment that David brings here. Lord, I have nothing good apart from you. You are the fount of every blessing. Every good and perfect gift comes down from you, from the Father of lights. Now, here's the thing about that. We all know that. 
And we all believe that with our heads. But wouldn't you agree with me that our hearts still look for satisfaction in other things? And it's such an exercise in frustration and futility. I'll, I'll explain it and try to describe it in this way. Earlier this week, I was watching YouTube videos about greyhounds. <laughs> Don't ask me why, I'm weird. And so I'm watching this YouTube videos about greyhounds racing around the track. Have you ever seen these dogs run? I mean, it's amazing. I was reading about it. They run like 20, 30, sometimes 40 miles an hour. And you know that the thing that motivates them as they speed around that track is there's this little mechanical bunny that they've affixed to a separate track that is racing out in front of them, and the dogs are merely trying to get the bunny. That's their motivation. Well, anyways, I read about this one race in Jacksonville, Florida that happened some years ago where something really curious happened. It had never happened before, but on this particular day, the dogs all lined up and they entered their, their gates in each of their respective lanes to set off on this race. And everything was fine. And then, bang, the bell goes off and the gates fling open and the mechanical bunny takes off just like it always does and the dogs shoot out of the gates at 40 miles an hour trying to catch this thing. But on this particular day, in this particular race, there was a malfunction, and the bunny broke down about 100 yards outside of that first opening gate, so that the dogs started closing in on the bunny, and sure enough, they caught up to it. The first dog to catch up to the mechanical bunny, his name was Aladdin. He was a famous racing dog. And spectators described how they saw his jaws clamp down on that bunny. But instead of a nice, delicious bunny dinner that he thought he was going to get, Instead, he ended up with three broken teeth as he clamps down on this hard piece of metal. And I'm in my process, the way I think, I'm thinking, man, what a disappointing moment for that dog. He's literally spent his whole life trying to catch this bunny. He's running as fast as he can. He's dedicated years of his life. And let's remember, these are dog years, so they're going fast. Everything about his existence has been geared towards catching that bunny. And if I can just get the bunny, man, it's going to be so sweet. And he finally chomps down on it. And the bitter taste of disappointment <laughs> and metal runs through his mouth. Of course, you, you see where I'm going with this. It's not just dogs that chase bunnies. People chase bunnies, too. Maybe not mechanical ones. But so many of us spend our whole lives chasing something that lies just beyond our reach. And just like those dogs, we think, if I could just grab hold of this, then I would be happy. Then I would be satisfied. Then I would be content. If I just could get the promotion and get the raise and make my way to the corner office, if I could just meet Mr. Wright, or if I could just find Mrs. Wright, or maybe you're like past that and you're like, I'll settle for Mrs. Wright now, that if I could just find the right person and settle down and start a family, or if I could just win the lottery. Wouldn't that be great? It would solve all of my problems, pay off all my debts, and my life would be great. And we think like that, and we chase those things. And then every so often, one of us gets the bunny. Someone wins the lottery, someone gets the corner office, someone achieves all of their goals and dreams, and what do they inevitably discover? It, it doesn't live up to the thing that we project it to be in our minds. It's just metal, it's nothing, it's fluff, it's not real, it's not substantive, it doesn't satisfy the way that we thought it would. 
The things of this world could never satisfy. King Solomon, 3,000 years ago, discovered the same thing to be true. After spending a good chunk of his life pursuing happiness in the things of this world, here's what he concluded. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And at the end of the day, we could save ourselves a whole lot of heartache and a whole lot of pain and a whole lot of frustration if we could grab a hold of the truth that is set before us here in Psalm 16, verse 2. If we truly believed that there is no good thing apart from the Lord. As C.S. Lewis put it, he who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. So David tells us the Lord is the source of all his satisfaction. And then in verse 4, if you'll jump down there with me, he, he tells us the, the inverse of that truth. He says, those who do run after other gods, they suffer more and more. Some of you are at this point are thinking, I'm not chasing after other gods. This is like an ancient text and doesn't really apply to me. Well, is that really the case? I mean, while we don't bow down before little golden statues or idols like they did back in biblical times, let's not kid ourselves. We all have idols in our lives. It's just that our idols are 50 inches wide and come in high definition. We park our idols in our driveways and we wax them and we wash them and we vacuum them. Our, our idols are two stories tall and come with a white picket fence and a good view and a low interest rate. We all have idols in our lives. And what David says is when you pursue idols, when you chase after them, you're adding sorrow to your own life. And beyond that, know this, that those idols, they give you less and less joy. And at the same time, they demand more and more and take more and more from you, which is why David goes on to say, I'm not going to pour out offerings or libations or blood sacrifices to these idols. I'm not going to even take their name on my lips. Listen up, tune in, young people. Here's the deal with those things that promise you so much happiness in life outside apart from Jesus. They always give less and less joy while simultaneously taking more and extracting and demanding more and more from you. So that if business is your idol, you'll end up sacrificing your integrity to climb the ladder of success. If acceptance is your idol, You'll sacrifice your honesty and lie to people just to make them like you and get their affirmation. If romance is your idol, you'll walk out on your spouse as soon as the spark seems to fade. You see, idols are like fires. It never says, that's enough. They're never satisfied. They always ask for more and more. They're harsh taskmasters. But God, he's different. Instead of demanding more and more from us, God always gives more and more to us. And that's what David goes on to point out in verses 5 and 6 when he says, Lord, you're my portion. You're my cup. You make my lot secure. And I love this line. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I will say of the Lord, I have a delightful inheritance. When he talks about the boundary lines there and how they have fallen to him in pleasant places, he's no doubt referring to the fact that when the Israelites came into the promised land, God had them apportion and distribute the promised land to the Israelites after the conquest of Canaan. And so there were different allotments given to each tribe, with one notable exception. The, the tribe of Levi, which was the priestly tribe, 
They got no physical inheritance in the, the promised land. As a matter of fact, listen to Numbers 18:20. Here's what the Lord said through Aaron. You, this is speaking to those Levites, those priests. He said, you shall have no inheritance in their land, nor own any portion among them, for I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. Now, that's beautiful, and we love that. But <laughs> let's be honest. I wonder if the other Israelites at the time felt kind of bad for the Levites. Oh, man, you're a Levite? I'm really sorry you didn't, you didn't get a, a portion of land. That's, that's kind of a bummer, actually. But as David thought about it, the more he pondered it, the more he realized, no, 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 they got the very best part. They got the Lord. And if I have the Lord, I have everything. Amen. And here's the truth about that. Just like David, if you're a believer in Jesus this evening, then you too have an incredible inheritance. Now, that should be really good news to you, especially if you, know, you don't have a penny to your name. If you are a believer in Jesus, you have an incredible inheritance. OK, another weird show that I was watching. This one was uh, on the Today Show. And they were featuring this, this piece about unclaimed money. Have you ever heard about this? So evidently, there's like all kinds of unclaimed money out there. It, it might, it's in the form of billions of dollars in unclaimed cash. It might be an old paycheck that you forgot to pick up, or a stock note that you forgot you had, or even an inheritance that belongs to you that you haven't claimed. And well, I guess what happens is when nobody claims this money, it just gets turned over to the state and it just sits there and languishes. Well, they were talking about this on the Today Show and then they told about this website. It's called unclaimed.org. And you can go to this website and you can type in your information and they will tell you how much money is out there waiting for you to just claim it. So I did that. I hop on the website, I fill out the form, and I find that there's $700 just waiting for me in the internet. That's not true. There wasn't any money waiting for me on the internet. But you don't have to feel bad for me. Because just like David, I have a wonderful inheritance. I'm rich because I know Jesus. The Apostle Paul referred to this inheritance in Ephesians 3 and described it as the unfathomable riches of Christ. The idea behind that statement is that our inheritance is too deep and too wide to be measured. You say, well, what is it? I mean, I want to hear it. Well, let me just run through a, a little bit of your inheritance in Christ. According to Romans 8.29, you were foreknown and predestined to be conformed into the image of Christ. According to 1 Peter 2.4, you've been chosen. Romans 9.11 says that we've been called. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says that we have been reconciled to God, made right with God. Hallelujah. We're no longer at war with him. Colossians 1.14 says that we've been redeemed. We've been bought with something so much more precious than silver or gold. We've been bought with the precious blood of the lamb. Ephesians 2.13 talks about how we've been brought near, no longer separated from God, but brought near. According to Ephesians 2.18, we have been given access to the Father. John 1.12 says that we've been brought into God's family, and we've been made his sons and his daughters. According to 2 Corinthians 5.17, we're new creations in Christ. Romans 8.15 tells us that we've been adopted. 
Hebrews 10.14 says that we've been made perfect. Ephesians 1.6 says that we've been accepted. And I could go on and on and talk about how we've been forgiven, how we've been sanctified, how we've been justified, how we've been made complete and been given an eternal inheritance. But suffice it to, t- to say, just like David, we can conclude the lines have fallen to us in pleasant places. And we too have a beautiful inheritance awaiting us. He goes on. It just keeps getting better. In verse 8, David says this, I'm going to keep my eyes always on the Lord. If we could just make that a life goal, to just keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And never has this been more pertinent or important than it is right now. Because there are all thing, kinds of things out there that are vying for our attention. And it's really easy to get our eyes off the Lord. So let me I just ask you, where are your eyes fixed today? What has your attention? Because whatever has your attention has you. And based on statistical data, if we were to go and measure our answer against that, then I would guess, venture to say that most of us would say what has us and has our attention is our phones. <laughs> I, I read a statistic that said, on average, iPhone users touch their phone 2,617 times a day. I don't know what it is for Android users. This was just iPhone users. Maybe Android users is lower, they're more holy or something, but iPhone users touch their phones 2,617 times a day. That's a lot. And that's just an average. What that means is some of you, you're way above that number, and you're driving that number higher. But what are you seeing when you look on that screen, when you bury your head in your phone? Unrealistic images that push you to want more, try harder, be something that you're not, pushing you to chase after things that aren't going to satisfy in the end. I know for me, I'm always reading the news. And every time I read the news, I walk away more depressed. Our world is unraveling economically, politically, environmentally, socially, religiously, morally, and culturally. Do I need to go on? As I think about what I'm burying myself in and what I'm allowing to consume my attention and my thoughts and grab hold of my heart, I just feel sunk. But when I take my head out of my phone, when I fix my eyes on the Lord, it just, it adjusts my priorities. It adjusts the lens of my heart. I'm reminded of the fact that none of this stuff has caught God off guard. I'm reminded of the fact that he is on the throne and that he's coming again. And you want to know something else? Here's another side benefit of fixing your eyes on Jesus. As a general rule, You will always move towards and become like whatever you continually behold. Let me say that a different way. We become like what we continually behold. Whatever you are gazing at, you are becoming like. So what has you? That's why David continued to draw closer and closer to the Lord. His eyes were fixed on the Lord. And I'm convinced that this is why David was described as a man after God's own heart, because his eyes were on the Lord. So he was moving towards the Lord, and he was becoming like the Lord. And I wonder, what would happen in this city? What would happen in this church? What would happen in your life personally 
if you allowed God to touch your heart as much as you touch your phone? How might that change this community, this city, this world? We would be transformed. We'd be more peaceful, that's for sure. And we'd be more at rest, right? Isaiah 26.3, thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. This is the idea behind Hebrews 12, too, as well. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's what we need to do. David wasn't perfect. Far from it. He had his flaws, but he kept his eyes on the Lord. And it was a key to his contentment and his satisfaction in life. We have to end with verses 9 through 11, because this is where the song really just explodes. This is where the song crescendos. This is the moment. This is the drop, Okay, Verse 9, therefore, my heart is glad, and my tongue rejoices, and my body also will rest secure. Why? Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen. So far, David has been outlining so many of these temporal benefits that he enjoyed as a result of his relationship with the Lord. But here, David turns his attention towards eternity. And what we learn in verses 9 through 11 is that God always saves his best for last. Beyond that, we know that God saves his best for those who hold back the least. The more wholehearted we, we give ourselves to the Lord, the more he has to give to us. So after telling us about how the Lord had blessed him and caused the lines to fall to him in pleasant places and given him in a beautiful inheritance, David concludes his thoughts in these verses by telling us that the best thing about knowing the Lord is that the journey doesn't end when this life does. That the blessings that come to the Christian extend beyond the grave. And how do we know that? Because of Jesus, right? Jesus went to the cross. He died in our place. He rose from the dead victoriously over Satan, sin, hell, and death. And he's triumphant in his victory. And he extends that hand of fellowship to us. And he welcomes us into his presence. Hallelujah! See, the same Jesus that rose from the dead said to his disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled. That's right. In my father's house, there are many mansions. If it weren't so, I would have told you. And I'm going before you to prepare a place for you so that where I am, there you may be also. That's right. And the way you know, and Thomas says, we don't know the way. Show us the father. And Jesus says, Thomas, have I been with you so long a time and have you not yet known me? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the father except through me. And whoever has seen me has seen the father. Jesus says it's just getting started. His body didn't see decay. David could say, my body won't see decay because by faith he knew that a savior was coming. And he was talking prophetically in that scripture about Jesus whose body wouldn't be left in the grave. And I can say that with authority because in Acts chapter 2, Peter, none other than the apostle Peter, lays hold of this psalm in his first sermon on the day of Pentecost. And as he's filled with the Holy Spirit, he reaches back to Psalm 16 and he says, 
Jesus, David was talking about Jesus and how he would conquer the grave. And because he rose from the dead, we too can live with that confidence. Thus, we see that when it comes to this life, following the Lord really is the best way to go. Not just because he shows us the best path of life for the here and now. That's great. I love knowing that the Lord has marked out a path for me, that I can walk in it. But what's even better is knowing that that path extends on into eternity. See, this is what walking with the Lord brings. It brings life and joy now and pleasures forevermore in the life to come. This is what God wants for you. This is the kind of life God has for you. He longs to fill you with life and joy, and not just a little bit either. God wants you to experience life in all its richness, joy in all of its fullness, and pleasures in all their abundance. Listen, friends, he is the life-giving, joy-exuding, pleasure-delighting God. And I want to know, do you know God in this way? Are you experiencing and walking in his joy? He doesn't just sprinkle joy on us or drip joy on us. No, he wants to flood your soul with as much joy as you can hold. And then he wants that joy to overflow onto others. Perhaps you would say, how do I get that? I want it. I know I do. And the answer is so simple. It's laid out for us right here in verse 11. Where is the joy found? Where is the life found? Where is the pleasure forevermore found? In his presence. In your presence is fullness of joy. So do you want more joy? Then draw closer to Jesus. Because the closer you draw to the Lord, the more joy you'll experience in your heart. Again, to quote C.S. Lewis, I always quote him because, let's face it, he's awesome. He said, God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it's not there. There is no such thing. So we need to draw near to him. And in drawing near to him, his joy fills us. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.